You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. For today's podcast, we welcome back Sandy Pokler with Firm Capital and Darren Coleman at Raymond James. Both have been in the industry and their respective roles for three decades or so, and they've been professionally connected for about 15 years. So you can be sure this conversation will be more like two old friends chatting, because they are. We'll talk client experience, real estate, inflation, and much more. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. This is Alternative Thinking with James Baron with CASA. And uh, today we're talking with Darren Coleman at uh, Raymond James and Sandy Pokler with Firm Capital. And we've had a pretty interesting time in the markets, but we're going to start off with uh, the self-introduction. Start with you, Darren, and then we'll go over to, uh, to Sandy. Uh, thanks, James. My name is Darren Coleman. I'm a senior portfolio manager with Coleman Wealth uh, of Raymond James. I've been an advisor for 30 years. We have uh, a cross-border practice, so we work with clients in Canada as well as the United States. Uh, we've also been long-term investors uh, with Sandy and at Firm Capital. So uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges I think clients are facing at the beginning of 2022. And we'll also get Sandy's thoughts and comments about how uh, his organization is navigating through this tricky time and how we as investors are um, navigating this with them. Very cool. Thanks. Well, let's go to your uh, 30 years there for a bit, Darren. Like, Why are you making me feel old, James? I'm only 26. <laughs> I don't know how this is possible. Exactly. I don't know. It's, it's a break in the space-time continuum. And then you have folks in the U.S. and Canada. Now, is it Canadian investors that are investing in the U.S. or U.S. investors that are dual citizens? Or what, what, kind, of, what kind of book do you have? And what kind of percentage do you have? Yeah, so my practice has always been focused on solving complicated financial planning situations. Uh, I came mm-hmm. into the industry in 1992, so we've seen lots of uh, ups and downs and gyrations in the market. So every time somebody says it's different this time, I'm like, no, it might be new, but it's not necessarily different. Uh, and we always mm-hmm. focused on um, clients and navigating through to have a comfortable retirement. Now, I would argue the trick is having them stay comfortably retired, as many of them have reached that pinnacle. We also kept encountering a specific complication that no one seemed to have a solution for, which for people who had money and family on both sides of the border. And yeah. so about 10 years ago, we moved the practice to Raymond James because they are you know, one of the largest North American wealth management firms in existence. And they had a, uh, a platform that allowed us to be operational in both countries. So um, we got here as that was kind of beginning uh, and really pioneered the use of that platform to solve problems for clients that probably wouldn't have been able to solve this problem any other way. So it allowed it's allowed us to expand our capability set uh, to help people, not just in Canada, but also, you know, people that had, as I say, money and family in both countries. So there's a lot of Canadians that have worked in the United States, returning home or have family members there. Uh, so it, it really allowed us to provide, I think, a higher level of service advice and capability to people. Because uh, it's very true that most Canadian families have someone or an asset in the U.S. And mm-hmm. the, the taxation issues and the compliance issues tend to tangle people up pretty well. Uh, so we're very solutions focused. So that has turned out to be a very specific solution that we offer. But within the context of how do we people navigate all the other financial planning challenges that they have. And a big part of that is how do we help them invest successfully 
to achieve what their goals are. So it's allowed us to have, um, and because I get bored easily, we keep searching out new and different ways to do things. So we've had an experience uh, and exposure to alternatives that go back about 20 years. Uh, and you and I uh, and CASA have done a number of things together. And it also mm-hmm. um, brought us to firm capital, oh gosh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago by now, um, as we began to learn about how uh, they invest in the Canadian uh, lending and real estate landscape. And then we've We've been partnering with them for a long time, and it's been very successful. So, uh, so I'll turn it over to Sandy, maybe, and he can tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, let's hear your story, Sandy. Yeah, sure. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, so my name is Sandy Pokor. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and, and Head of, of Capital Markets here at, at Firm Capital. Um, so to give you some background, Firm Capital is a real estate asset management firm with $5.5 billion of assets all focused on real estate related investments, both in debt and equity platforms. Um, we manage here uh, three public vehicles. One is the Board to Mortgage Investing called Firm Capital Mortgage Investment Corporation, um, as well as two public other co- public companies, Firm Capital Property Trust, which is our Canadian Commercial REIT, and Firm Capital Apartment REIT, which is our US domiciled apartment REIT. Um, in addition, we manage a, a number of private vehicles, as well as some institutional funds as well as um, capital for high net worth individuals. Um, so th- that's what we do here on a, on a day-to-day basis. Our, 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 of our $5.5 billion, mm-hmm. about $1.3, $1.4 billion is related into mortgage investments, predominantly in the bridge and, mor- bridge and mezzanine lending space. And the remainder of our capital is devoted to real estate debt and equity, as well as real estate capital market securities. That's great. Very diversified, and uh, obviously a lot of capital behind it too. So you've had some some great growth. How long have you have you been in business? Obviously longer than ten uh, so or fifteen. The company, years. Yeah, the company was founded in 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 the, in the eighties. So it's been this this year. It's its thirty fifth year. Um, and there you so go, Darren. That should make you feel younger now. That <laughs> does make me feel younger for sure. Yeah, it was started a long time ago by our chairman and founder Ellie the Douche, um, um, who started the company back in the eighties, and it's been around ever since. Um, why just the U.S. for the apartments? Is there was there um, you have any Canadian apartments in there? And then you think you said the Canadian side is all commercial. Is there any U.S. commercial, or is it strictly one 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 than the other? So, so on our real estate, that's a great question, James. So the the, the breakdown of our portfolio is about twenty five hundred apartment units in Canada, about eighteen hundred apartment hmm. units in the U.S. on the real estate side, as well as well as about three million square feet of of retail assets, along with another three to four million square feet of industrial real real estate as well. You check all the boxes there. Any uh, geographies? Like any? Is it like your Southwest or GTA focus in the Canada, or, or like say Southwest or or Southeast in, in the states? Or yeah. So on the mortgage side, so if I if I break down the, each of the the, 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 the um, um, groupings. On the mortgage side, about two thirds of our portfolios within the GTA, followed by the remainder of Canada and, and some loans in the U.S. Um, we also have in the, within our real estate portfolio, we're, we're, we're right across the country, predominantly within Ontario. Um, but again, we're well diversified into Quebec, Alberta, and Quebec. Uh, sorry, and, and the East Coast as well. So how so Nova Scotia um, and New Brunswick. Nice cross country. Uh, well, let's go to, let me stick with Sandy for this and get the, uh, 
get the uh, more specialized view on the real estate side. How has this thing called interest rates affected you or how do you think it will affect you? Because we've seen, I think I saw a 50, 50 point bump and then I think it was a 75, 75 and, a, and then a whole point. Um, so, uh, or say 50 bips, 75, was that, was that the progression? I, I can't keep up with the bank Canada cause they keep kind of changing the rules here, but Sandy, how, how has these in- increase in interest rates affected you? And where do you think based on your, you know, decades of looking at the real estate market, how will this affect real estate? Will it be more of a, a drag or because of inflation is it, are things going to just continue to, to ramp up here? So it's, it's an interesting question. It's, it's, you know, it's a tale of two cities, if you will. If I look at our mortgage book, let's start with our mortgage book. Predominantly, our mortgage book is almost entirely residential, real estate focused. Mm-hmm. Um, the investments that we have, we typically price those investments to be the greater of a fixed floor rate or prime plus a spread. And it's the greater of in, in that formula. So cool. if you look at what's happened in the past 90 days, all of our existing mortgage investments have had, have had the benefit of the higher rate environment. So anything, so whenever prime has risen, um, likewise our mortgage investments have risen and we publicly disclose that. So for every 50 basis point hike on our mortgage portfolio, the MIC generates an additional 45 basis points of interest income. So it's been a positive on the mortgage investment space. Um, On the, on the, on the, Real estate side, it's it's a bit different. We don't have many floating rate loans, so it hasn't affected us yet, us yet other than our lines of credit. However, mm-hmm. um, obviously, when the refinancings do occur, and they will occur, they will impact us. Um, um, you know, albeit yeah, so, I wouldn't say negatively, and I'll, and I'll say why in a second, but there will be a, a negative impact, for lack of a better word. However, what we've been generating is because of our our leases are inflation adjusted. And we were, we're, we're able to capture the, the upside of both renewals and new leases. Mm. We're able to capture that upside on inflation as well. So whenever there's a rate hike on our mortgage and on our, on our liability side from our mortgages, we generate, we typically will generate higher income from our lease rates as well. And I mean, to give you some context, you know, leases that we've had in place that were in the three to $4 per square foot range um, on the industrial space, for example, we're now releasing at 12 to 13 to $14 a square foot right now. Whoa. So massive increases in, in lease renewals that have occurred in the past you know, year or so. So we're capturing the upside. So even though we see rate hikes on the liability side, because a lot of our leases are commercial, uh, we're able to capture the, the, the annual upside from CPI increases annually, along with any new leases and renewals that come to, that come to fruition as well. So we're seeing we're seeing an overall positive benefit for the time being at least. Um, obviously, what we're not seeing right now on the the, the um, on the hike of rates is is the likewise increase in cap rates, i.e., the decrease in valuations that you're seeing in real estate. And we believe that will that will come in a matter of time. So to put it in context, you know, real estate should always generate a, a net investing positive spread. Mm-hmm. The positive spread between your, your cost of capital and your investing return, your gross investment, i.e. your cap rate, should generate a spread of at least 150 basis points. If you were to look at the implied cap rates that are used today or the in-place cap rates that are used on valuations on, on most of the public companies, right now, cap rates haven't moved. So there's actually, if they were to buy, people were to buy real estate at today's cap rates, mm-hmm. they're getting a negative investing spread of 100 to 150 basis points. 
So what we have, what we've seen is that the increase in, in, in yields on the, on the liability side, albeit they haven't matched what's gone on with the Bank of Canada, which we could talk about separately. But what we are see, what we aren't seeing is quite yet the increase in cap rates. And once that happens, is when you'll see valuations, you know, decline, and some great opportunities come up for people to buy real estate. Amazing. How about you, Darren? From your uh, your book, because imagine you have some other things like bonds and bond funds and these types of things, or maybe you don't have any. Well, bonds no, not really. We've been pretty light <laughs> on bonds for a long time. Uh, and that's we're mo- well, because re- remember what we're trying to solve for, you know, for us, investments are just tools in a toolbox, right? And what clients are asking us to solve for is, look, Darren, I want to be able to be, to be able to comfortably retire. Then I want to be able to stay comfortably retired. And the trick ah, to that. Yeah. And the trick to that, as we've had to educate people over the last 30 years, uh, is that this is very much an income preservation strategy and income is connected to rising costs, right? It's whatever number you decide you're going to retire with, you're likely going to live or you or your spouse, one of the two of you is probably going to live to 30 years into retirement. So we have a three decade retirement plan for most people. And if you look at any reasonable inflation rate, maybe not the one we've had over the last six months or so, but if you take any reasonable uh, inflation rate, well, that means for most people, their challenge in retirement is they're going to have to come up with a way for their income to triple over that 30-year time period. Mm-hmm. So, it's so, And they don't know that, which is amazing to me. Our industry has not done a great job of explaining, I think, to people. It'd that be a great sales tool, too. I mean, well, geez. <laughs> well, it's, it's just that's the math, right? So take whatever number you want to retire with. The single most important thing your portfolio must do, there's lots of things it can or could or should do, but the number one thing it must do is grow at a rate at or better than that of the inflation number you're using. So that means generally for most people, it's a triple. So if you say, you know what, I'm 62, I'd like to retire, I wanna be able to spend $50,000 a year. Well, by the time you're 90, that 50,000 had better become 150,000, by which nothing's happened, by the way. This isn't a magic trick. That's just, you know, your groceries have gone up by three times or more. And we've had a really strong reminder in 2022 of just what inflation means. We all kind of forgot about that, but the price at the gas pump, the price at the grocery store, it's been shocking how much those day-to-day purchases we make have risen in value. And so if your retirement income strategy does not somehow create a rising income for you, then I would argue I'm not sure what your money's doing because that's really its primary goal. So what we look to find as investors are how do we create portfolios that have the best chance of success at delivering on that, right? And you know whether we use you know a, a, a dividend-paying stock, real estate, a hedge fund, all of them are, as I say, tools in a toolbox to deliver on how do I create a rising income for you? And one of the reasons we don't tend to be big investors in bond funds, part of the problem is in the name where it says fixed income, right? I don't really want fixed income because fixed income in a rising cost world is painful. So what we've done is we've kind of looked at the traditional concept of fixed income in an asset allocation model and said, well, instead of looking at bonds, you know, traditional government or corporate bonds as our strategy, why don't we look at how do we become better lenders, uh, lenders of debt? How do we do that? How do we achieve a better rate of return than what I can get in a government of Canada bond, but also be very mindful of what risk is. And, you know, we want good repayment. We want to have, you know, those five factors of credit, you know, character, credit worthiness. Sandy can go through all that stuff or any banker at your local bank branch could talk to you about those five 
uh, key components of credit. So we want to lend intelligently. We also want to lend effectively in a rising rate world, which is why we found from capital a long time ago, because we just found them to be very good lenders for the kind of borrowing and the kind of investing we want to make. We want to be able to get a rate of return um, nominally way ahead of what I could find out of a GIC or out of a, a, a bond fund or something like that. We wanted to have uh, investment managers that were lending to kind of the same people all the time, lending at very strong rates, remarkably good record of collecting. It's one thing to lend it out, as Sandy will tell you. It's another thing to get it back yeah. and do it again, right? So that maybe Sandy could talk about how they accomplished that. Um, and so that's really where we began with Firm Capital was, you know, how do we become smarter as lenders? And that began to fill up our fixed income allocation notionally. We've had some arguments with different compliance departments on, you know, is it really a fixed income investment? Is it an equity? Like what is a mortgage investment corp? Um, I think for most clients, uh, logically, it does fill a fixed income category, despite the box it might come in being considered something else by somebody else. From our perspective, though, we, we kind of treat it as a fixed income asset. And then we've also been able to look at what other types of investments naturally, like by their nature, create a rising income through time and also rising capital values through time. And that would, by default, make someone a, a real estate investor because real estate, well-managed, high-quality real estate has those same features, right? So mm -hmm. I, I often tell clients, we try to invest like a landlord, not necessarily as a speculator, right? We're not trying to profit on you know, hey, we bought this thing cheap and we can make money on it later. That would be nice. But really what we want to do is buy good quality real estate that's well managed. We have great tenants. We're getting a rising stream of income through time. And Sandy just talked about how this rising interest rate environment, rising inflation environment is seeing an increase in rent. So we're getting paid more. That's what we want. And yeah, longer wild. term, you know, what that does to the capital value of the properties, it is important. But for us, it's kind of secondary to what we're looking for. Um, and longer term, if you believe inflation is here to stay, then that increases the valuations of, of almost every asset class, every equity-based asset class over time. Right. So so for us, we're really looking for, as I say, that high current income, rising income through time, intelligent lenders of debt. Let's also get repaid. And then when we look at real estate, we want to have it well managed. So our income is really the primary focus for us. So that's kind of what we're looking for. And I would argue that I would say most investors, if they're looking to create that really comfortable, sustainable retirement income and income preservation, I think they'd naturally be looking in this direction also. Very cool. How do you deal with, because um, most assets, I mean, with GICs, the value never moves with high, low, you know, short-term bonds, it'll move a little bit, but yeah. how do you kind of work with the volatility that, you know, these real estate, like, like Sandy was saying, like at some point, these cap rates will probably go up. Only one of two things are going to happen. Either rate, rents are going to go up, which you've seen in the commercial market, mm -hmm. or you're going to have the values come off. So how do you deal with that? Like, which, I mean, it could come off by 10 or 15%. You'll see that in bond markets too, but how do how do you how do you work with clients on that that are looking for it? Listen, Darren, don't lose me money. Well, yeah. things got to move. Like how do you? That's great. That's a great point, James. Because I think a big part of the advisor's job is educate the client on what is it we're really trying to do and what should we be really afraid of, and that's why I try to come to them from the future and say, look, retirement income. And it's all about protecting the purchasing power. Your biggest risk is not a stock market correction. Your biggest risk is your debit card. It's the fact that you go to the grocery <laughs> store and say, why is ketchup $13 a bottle? What the heck just happened here? Why is gas $2 a liter? What is going on? And we're feeling that right now. 
And so if you look at, oh, yeah. you know, creating an income for retirement, if you're concerned about preserving capital, this is the challenge. People have been conditioned to believe, in my view, that protecting capital is the most important thing. Well, retirement is not a capital game. It's an income game. So if we're trying to preserve purchasing power, it's about income preservation, not capital preservation. Obviously, we want to look after our capital. But if somebody comes to me and says, Darren, I want you to build me a portfolio where I can never lose a dime of my capital. All right, then that's going to be one portfolio. Um, but if someone came to me and said, Darren, I want to make sure that the dollar I have today will continue to buy a dollar's worth of stuff in the future. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to protect my dollar. I want you to protect what a dollar buys for me. That's a fundamentally different portfolio. Because if I build a portfolio that's all GICs at less than the real rate of uh, income. So like right now, if I buy a GIC at even at three or 4%, if I can find one, if inflation's running at five, six, seven or nine, you've automatically lost, I've guaranteed you've lost money. So I can give you your thousand dollars. Plus, well, the tax yeah. is a whole other ballgame, right? Yeah. Um, but I can guarantee you, I'm going to give you back less real dollars. I'll give you the same amount of dollars in a year or five years, but it's going to buy you less stuff. So what is the dragon we're fighting? Is it about protecting your capital, but we're going to risk your income, the real ability to spend income? Or do I want to have a strategy where... Look, your capital can fluctuate, but you're going to get more income in the future. So this is where I think the landlord analogy is a very powerful one. Because if I buy a great piece of real estate, whether it's a, an apartment building, a strip mall, whatever it is, and I've got great tenants in there, the day-to-day -day value of that property can move around. But as long as the tenants are paying me an ever-increasing amount of rent that covers all my costs and allows me to have a profit, then do I really care day to day what the value of that property is like ultimately i the two prices the two times i care about the price are the day i bought it bought the thing like what's the price the day i bought it and then ultimately what's the price the day i sell it which could be years in the future in between those two points in time what i'm really primarily concerned with is does this generate for me and my family an ever-increasing amount of income that rises faster than my costs so we're really finding that that dialogue that coaching to clients today as they're approaching, you know, this really important kind of third act of their lives is absolutely essential because anybody that's been investing in GICs over the last 10 years has seen nothing but lower and lower income off of that portfolio. So if you started investing when I started the business back in 1992, you could buy GICs that were paying 8%. Those have not been seen for a very, very long time. And I had people that, you know, their GIC at the bank came due at seven it was paying 7%. And guess what? The new one you can roll it over at is 2%. Well, what? My income just dropped by what? Two thirds? How do I live on that? Right? My $100,000 was paying me $8,000 a year. Now it's going to pay me $2,000 a year. What do I do? And what happens is the market did need to weigh at their capital. They had to sell a bunch of the bond to pay for their capital. So mm -hmm. that's why we try to educate clients to say, look, I know the textbook might tell you one thing, but we have to be really mindful of what is it you require. You need this money to generate as you go from accumulation phase to payout. You need the money to generate a rate of return on income. The capital has to be intact, of course, but it can fluctuate. What I don't want to fluctuate is you seeing, you know, as again with that GIC investor, oh, I was getting six. Now I'm getting two. My income just dropped from $30,000 a year to $5,000. What do I do? That's horrible. Now, I know my math was wrong there, but I don't do math in public. Um, <laughs> Behind the this is there. Really, but this, I think, is essential to people, especially when 
all the computer software and the models and everything else, when they told, you know, if you type into most of these portfolio optimization software packages, what the correct allocation ought to be embedded in that software are historical returns and correlations. Well, when interest rates were declining over the last 40 years, you had this huge bull market in fixed income. Well, hello, that's over. So the fact that interest rates went from like 18 to one, that's in the data. Well, that's not repeating itself. So if interest rates now go from two or four or six to six or 10, that bonds are toxic. So you have to, in my mm-hmm. view, you have to become much more intelligent as a lender of debt. So you gotta be able to lend for shorter terms in my opinion, you've got to be able to lend at higher rates than what, you know, you got to get some premium over what um, LIBOR is or what, you know, the government rate is, whatever the risk-free rate is, and you've got to be able to collect successfully. And one thing I should, I'm going to ask Sandy about is, Sandy, we've seen a lot, in my case, a lot of new entrants, as it were, into this market of real estate investing, um, real estate lending. And, you know, we get to do a lot of due diligence on a lot of people. What, in your view, makes firm capital a bit different or special around how you guys do your lending? What makes you guys unique in the marketplace? Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, uh, Darren, so from our perspective, you know, I think when you, when you talk about new entrants, I think the key word there is new. A lot of the people that have entered the market don't have the experience of lending, if you will. They, they, the vast majority of these entrants that have come around the last two to three years, even longer, I would say even five years, were typically people that could generate capital to put the work strictly into, into second or even third mortgages for the most part in tra- non-traditional, non-central business district or CBD areas. So as a result, you saw, as you can imagine, people, you know, you know, able to get mortgages out the door at, you know, some significantly great rates of return, but do, do not have the experience or, or just don't have the wherewithal to go ahead and collect, to enforce, to properly underwrite and do, do proper due diligence on the asset. I mean, the, the, the key thing that we do here internally, and we see this from, from our experience, mm-hmm. has been and, and has always been that we, we focus on core liquidly marketable real estate areas that on, and we and we invest our mortgages into real estate that we ourselves are happy to own ourselves on our books at the price that we're lending the money out and that's critical to everything that we do around here so we, we take the view that a mortgage is an option to buy real estate while getting paid on your option and so when you take that approach as to what you're willing to pay for that real estate in the event of a blow up, your, your mindset changes in such that you, you, you prepare to underwrite in such a way that you become conservative, that you become, you know, you know, you, you think through your thesis and then you go about and executing on a plan that in the event of a blow up, you're prepared to enforce. And that's what we're very good at around here is that we're, we have the ability and the experience to not only see, I've seen major cycles like the nineties crash, um, like the the, um, the 08, 07 crash, but also have the experience to enforce in those crashes and have the experience as to what needs to take place. So we have the context of history as well, given our 35 year track record. So we have the context of history to, to be able to go out and, and enforce and have the experience and the team internally to enforce, to collect on that real estate and then make our investors whole over time if need be. Um, you know, Ellie and the, and the team have had, you know, 
you know, obviously saw the 90s crash. I saw the 90s crash from a different, different lens, but they nonetheless had that experience on the lending side. So that's what's key for them is that while they will put up money to, to invest, particularly in this, this market, they, we've dialed it back on, on, on loan to values. We've dialed it back. We've, we've been very strict on our underwriting terms and our due diligence. And we've, we've really focused on good borrowers in this market that are well capitalized. And in the event that they can't pay us through the real estate, they can pay us from other sources of capital, which mm. is critical. That's and, cool. and, that's what's, and that's what's different than I would say a lot of my competitors. My competitors would just, you know, find a piece of real estate somewhere in, in Timbuktu. That's north of Markham, I think, right? Is that, or is that south of Sudbury? I'm not sure where that is, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, they will go out and, and provide a second mortgage, you know, hoping a return on their investment, not realizing that, and, and in a lot of cases, that it's very difficult. It's, it's a simple process to enforce, but it's, it's very complicated to go through the process, very time consuming very difficult. And I would argue that the vast majority, more than 80% of, of the alt D lender space are people that never saw the 90s recession, the depression, right. if you will. Agreed. And they're, they're, they're in for a rude awakening right now. And we're seeing it now. I mean, we're seeing it in the terms of a lot of these lenders are pulling back from, from lending, that they're starting to see some blow ups, if you will, for lack of a better word. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just this past week, for example, give you some context, we have a, um, a financing, a dip financing, what's called a debtor possession financing, which to summarize, puts you in a super priority over the first lender. We just provided a dip financing on a condominium project here in Toronto. That was originally, I believe, funded either through one of the banks or through an alt D lender, if you will. Yeah. Um, that is now um, going through receivership. And, you know, and so we're, we've we've taken advantage of that, given our ability to enforce and collect, we can go ahead and provide that kind of capital in the marketplace right now, but on a very conservative LTV basis. Hmm. It looks like, uh, Sandy, you're saying like most of your mortgages are floating rate and uh, with, the, with the floor and um, a lot of your commercial stuff was going from, I think it was like three to $13 a foot. Um, but how, how does it work? Like when, when rates were heading south, um, like it seems like your duration is basically zero, or perhaps negative. It seems like from a from a bond uh, bond talk sort of thing. How how did that? How did you guys do during the times when the rates were going down? Because at some point, you think if if um, we head into recession, and that and we'll probably talk on that for in a couple minutes too. Um, rates will head back back south, but how had had that been a, a drag on your your portfolio, or how do you, how do you guys uh, keep going through those those kind of times? Because it seems like you're you're doing pretty well when rates are heading up. It would do great when rates are when when rates are down. Very simply, we had a floor rate in place that that would that it was significant enough to, to compensate for any down drag on, on rates themselves. So mm, when we right, price, right. yeah, so we have a fixed floor rate that mimics the 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 one year treasuries or call it prime rate if you will, plus a spread, and we're happy to invest at that spread. And usually the, the, the rate started anywhere between six and three quarters percent to nine percent if you will. Um, so, you know, even though rates were declining, we still had a wide enough gap in, in spread on the initial investment that we were happy to own it, um, uh, you know, for, for the duration of the loan. And remember, as you pointed out, the duration of the loans are only a year to 18 months. So we're always able to recycle that, that capital and, and, and continue that, that positive spread mm -hmm. um, once the loan is burned off and, and they um, come up for renewal or they get repaid. 
Yeah, and see, this is what we're looking for as investors, right? Is we want access to these strategies, but the trick is to find the people you can partner with that help take a lot of the risk out of it. And it's been interesting for us watching like the last two years, you know, with all the money that went into the market to try and, you know, protect us all from the pandemic, we saw a lot of investors decide risk didn't matter anymore. Right. So they started going into the, you know, somewhat more, let's say, interesting places of the market, whether they were meme stocks or uh, crypto or, or, you know, the high tech space. So we saw a lot of people chasing a lot of high returns, which in 2022 have given a huge amount of that back. So anyone late to the party is dealing with some pretty significant hits to capital. And it's interesting to me how people kind of forget about risk management at the worst possible time. And we again, so coming back to the lending space, we've watched a lot of new competitors show up with these great stories about how they were going to lend in this kind of environment. And my question to all of them was like, tell me about the time, you know, when markets weren't so positive for you. How yeah. did you collect then? What did you do? And most people, unfortunately, are focused on upside opportunity and they forget you got to look at the nuts and bolts of how do you manage risk, whether it's a, a hedge fund, uh, an equity investor, and particularly when you're a lender. How do you do that? So, so that's where we've navigated, I think, to people that put a risk management first priority onto what they do. And, and so I would encourage most advisors, if you're looking at different investments, take the time to do your own homework, talk to your analysts, but you know, find the time to get to know the actual people doing it. The doors are really open, actually. I've always found mm-hmm. Sandy and the team at Firm to be very open and accommodating. Yeah, no, look, we're very transparent. I mean, beyond the normal disclosures that you would see on our on our website, um, as well as our um, materials as well, we've always I've, we've always taken the policy that you know our investors are, are, are you know in part family, for lack of a better word, and I've always taken the the the, the, um, um, the policy myself personally that anyone who comes to invest with me is to be treated with respect, and so. Anyone who calls at my desk, and I'll, I will take calls from just about any investor. I don't care how big or small they are. That's awesome. But, you know, the reality is I will address any questions to the extent I'm able to. I think that's Darren's mantra also, because any advisor, any, like you say, anybody who's in the public eye or you're dealing with clients, like you've got to be able to not hide under your desk sort of thing. Yeah. And, that, and to us, that's important. You know, we have to answer to the client. We act as a fiduciary in our capacity as a portfolio manager also. Uh, and I think it's really critical that the advisor does their own homework. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, firm capital is followed by a few of the different firms. So you can pull up independent research, but nothing really, I think, replaces the ability to go and talk to management, whether it's by Zoom or if you're nearby, uh, go over for a visit. And we do a lot of that work. So we've been able to build relationships with um, the portfolio managers that we use to that, that, that take us into areas of the market where expertise really matters and makes a difference, right? I don't think mm-hmm. you can play the home game in this category. And we see the people that say, look, my, my lawyer, my cousin, they're creating this pool to invest in second mortgages and things. I just shake my head and go, why are you doing that? Why do you want to take the risk of this? Like, how much do you think you're going to make? And I'm like, instead of that, why don't we go to a place that does this properly, professionally, long history of it, great access, actually does this all the time, not just off the corner of somebody's desk um, mm. or the new bright shiny thing where somebody's created, oh, because we've seen, unfortunately, too many frauds. We've seen too many issues of people not getting repaid. We've seen too many black boxes. Um, uh, and one thing actually we find very attractive is what Firm Capital offers to us is all market uh, uh, available. So we can buy it on the Toronto Stock Exchange, which I think is also an interesting choice that a lot of their uh, products are available through the TSX. We don't have to go through 
fun serve or whatever, where they can open the box, close the box, have redemption penalties and features. You know, we've already seen some examples of, of how that can be a problem. Um, so maybe Sandy, could you talk about that? I think that was a philosophical decision you guys must have made at some point yeah. is to make sure that your products are exchange listed. They're not some closed end fund or open ended fund that you buy direct. You have to buy them through an exchange. So what are some of the, cause that's obviously costly for you guys to do it that way. What's the benefit to the client for having that structure? Well, I, I well, so the, to just to add to that, we do have some private prepare, private, uh, proprietary funds as well. Um, that we open up to high net worth individuals and permitted clients. Um, but the public vehicles themselves were designed, all three of them, to, to allow for your everyday investor to invest a lot with us. Um, and so the key thing for us was that we wanted to have, you know, public vehicles that were, were, were two things. Number one, we're able, the access to capital was unprecedented. I mean, to be a TSX listed vet issuer, you have access to capital if you have the right product. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. The second thing was the ability for an investor to effectively quote unquote, redeem their stock by selling it uh, without I impacting the company in any way. So, it, you know, when you're on the, the TSX, you have a permanent amount of capital that is raised through the market, through your IPOs and then on your follow on offerings. Um, and then that capital is then used to, to acquire and so forth. But then the investor can then buy and sell through an exchange at a moment's notice if they require liquidity. So what I would consider to be your average mom and pop investor for lack of a better word, or your retail investor, that they have the ability to invest alongside us in those one of the one, if not all of those three public vehicles. Um, you know, for the for the individuals that are, you know, call it, uh, have that have more access to capital that are a little more high net worth, um, they have the ability to go through our private funds where, you know, the redemption features are are a little more rigorous or a little more strenuous, um, but they have the access to capital to higher yielding vehicles potentially, or, or, or just the ability to invest without having to deal with the emaciations of the capital market. So we offer something to everyone, if you will, for lack of a better word. Um, but the key thing with the public markets has been the ability to raise capital at a moment's notice through bought deals, mm -hmm. um, as well as the, the ability for an investor to sell their stock and get redeemed for, you know, through the exchange, if you will. Right. And do you also, would you agree that the listing requirements to stay on the exchange are higher than what you'd have if you were a, a, an open-ended fund or a closed-end fund? For each of our public companies per annum, ranges anywhere between one hundred and fifty dollars to $250,000 a year just to maintain the listing. And it's not just TSX costs, it's auditor's fees, it's listing right. fees, it's, mm -hmm. it's all those things. Um, but it's well worth it. It's well worth the spend when you have the ability, to, you know, to, to go to the market and raise $20 million in a, in a couple of hours, it, it becomes very fortuitous as to have that listing. And that, that's the key advantage, if you will. Right. And for us as investors, that's something that we look at is, you know, if they're willing to do that and take under that cost and that commitment and that scrutiny, uh, that's all about risk management from our perspective. So that that even though it might be an added cost to the fund, an added cost to the interholder, we actually think it's worth spending on that because um, you never know when that might be a benefit. And you know we're watching a pretty large fraud unfold in Canada and another lending product, unfortunately, um, that was not exchange listed. And I don't know mm -hmm. if the exchange would have helped or hurt it or would have prevented the problem, but I think more eyes on product and, and strategy is probably better than fewer. So, you know, what? Right. I, I'll answer that question. Actually, I can answer that. I think sure. it's a bit, it's, it, it's, it, it's, a, I know what you're talking about. And 
I would argue that it's it's really hard to tell on that one. Yeah. Because on one aspect, from one perspective, the mark to market would have occurred on a regular basis on the on the stock had it been listed every quarter, if you will, because you'd have seen the decline in earnings. The problem is is that the company itself that, that you're mentioning here does not have a ha, does not have to disclose their actual physical investments while being listed. And they could argue for proprietary reasons they didn't have to. So, and, mm. so unless you were able to see under the hood to the actual investment yourself, you wouldn't know something was going on unless you saw the quarterly decline in earnings um, while it was listed on the market. And, and as such, giving investors the opportunity to exit, if you will, um, on, a, on, a, on an equitable basis, for lack of a better word. I mean, certainly more than what, what they're, they're expected to recover now from that investment. That's right. That's right. So this is why we like the ability to go in and just, you know, sell it at the market. We get a market price, whether we like it or not, it's our decision, but the door is still open. There is a, and there is an escape hatch as it were, um, as opposed to finding out that, oh no, someone locked the hatch. I can't get out. So that can be very problematic. Well, um, and it comes down to transparency and access. And for us, that's, uh, that's what we're looking for. And that's what we found with Sandy and with firm. And, um, as I say, we've been pleased with what we've had from them and we find them to still be very good partners for us and what we're, and again, for us, it's not about the fund. It's not about the strategy. It's what does it allow us to accomplish for clients? So for us, it's a really good tool in our toolbox. Love it. Thank you both. Well, time for our exit. Uh, thanks again for, uh, for coming onto our little podcast here, Darren and Sandy. And, uh, We'll look to have you guys again another one sometime soon, and uh, you know we'll get another update on what's what's been happening over over the the time from this one to the next one. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Oh, thank you.